We're back. We've made it to the second episode. It is the Friendly Neighborhood Wedgehead Podcast. My name is Eric Burnham, and I uh, I, I managed to injure myself before the recording. I, I popped a, a tendon in my jaw or something like that. I can still talk, but it feels weird, and it's kind of distracting. However, I don't have to do all of the talking because I have a co-host. With me is Ethan Colchimero, and we're talking Spidey. Ethan, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Eric, and uh, I appreciate your uh, dedication. I mean, not a lot of other Spider-Man podcasts would, would work through this level of pain. So this is how important it is to us to bring you these pressing thoughts about the cinematic adventures of our favorite hero. That's right. Well, the magic words are uh, ibuprofen and methylcarbamol. You know, it's going to help us get into the show, which we're going to do right now. Last week, we talked about the first 25% of the 2002 Spider-Man film by Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire. We left off with Mary Jane Watson heading off with Flash Thompson in his brand new car, Peter watching them go and thinking, man, I could use a car. And that's where we open up. Peter looking through the want ads, trying to find a cheap car in 2002. I couldn't <laughs> believe some of those prices at that point, but, uh, you know. Yeah, right. We're an Alfa Romero for three grand, but uh, there's so much nostalgia happening in that movie. I mean, it, it doesn't feel like it was close to two decades ago, but I'm sure a lot of younger uh, listeners who, you know, watch these movies for the first time recently are asking their parents or older siblings, like, what is he looking through? What is, what is this collection of paper uh, that that has these cars in it, uh, but yeah, the the one ads. Uh, I, I think this is before Google. I think you're right. That's a freaky, just a <laughs> ah. But um, here is where Peter, in accordance with the origin, sees an ad for professional wrestling, which is where he debuts uh, his powers for the first time. You know, I kind of like the wrestling costume design. Just it, it felt felt DIY in a way that was practical and realistic. Agreed, a hundred percent. You know, I, I have to personally admit to loving his first homemade costume. I remember very distinctly being so pleasantly surprised that they kept the wrestling bit in this film because it seems like the kind of thing that a lot of filmmakers, you know, pre Marvel Studios would kind of think of was maybe too silly. The only thing that struck me as weird was that was a really full crowd for <laughs> like an afternoon in New York City. Don't these people have jobs? <laughs> it's the city that never sleeps. Maybe they work at night. I, uh, maybe, I guess. Maybe it was a Saturday. I mean, they never really say what day. That's of the true. It could have been. A, it could have been a Saturday. It could have been an early thing. But it, it was a little weird. And now we got to talk about Uncle Ben, who has been noticing the changes Peter's been going through, the aggression, the confidence that he has had with his powers, the shirking of the chores, and so on. So when Peter says he's going to go to the library, Ben is going to drop him off. He drives him into the city, not knowing, of course, that Peter means to go and uh, do a little wrestling as the human spider. But uh, he drops Peter off in the city and tries to get a conversation going, trying to understand what's going on with his nephew, and it does not go well. And because we know this is the last conversation that these two are going to have, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. But man, I mean, a big part of every superhero story is that kind of adolescent wish fulfillment. Spider-Man, more than any other, really leans in on it. If you did finally get that kind of power after just getting pushed around and bit on for so long, you absolutely would be a bit of a jerk. Well, I mean, he had a lot of anger to work with, and mm -hmm. it made me wince when he unloaded on Ben. Again, because we know what's coming, mm -hmm. but um, it was rough, and I uh, I have this written down. Uh, the, the Uncle Ben speech was good, but outside of the with great power, the line that stuck out to me was, 
be careful who you change into. Yeah. That was just a beautifully added bit. And then we're off to our afternoon wrestling with Octavia Spencer. <laughs> I love seeing Octavia Spencer in that scene. It it's was so fun. You know, it's always funny to see stars in uh, earlier stuff. Uh, and then, and then of course, Bruce Campbell in his role as the wrestling announcer who gives Spider-Man the name Spider-Man because the human spider does suck. He was not wrong. He was not wrong. <laughs> that would not have been a billion dollar franchise. What I did love, though, is it showed Peter's nerdery. No, no, I'm the human spider. He got it wrong. Right. Fixated on that detail. <laughs> right. And that's what a science nerd would call himself. Yes. So anyway, there are a couple of quotes from this movie that have made it into my family lexicon. Okay. I mean, they're not huge lines, but one of them is from this scene. Uh, my brother started saying this. My sister says this. Occasionally, I say this when we get a minor injury. My legs. Oh, God, I can't feel my legs. <laughs> <laughs> it's so ridiculous, but I love it. It makes me laugh. Every and, uh, time. and the other yeah. one is a Green Goblin line, which we'll get to later. Not all the jokes age quite as well as that one. Uh, Spider-Man mm. uh, throwing it at Randy Savage or Bonesaw McGraw. Oh, that's a cute outfit. Did your husband make it for you? It didn't work. Uh, yes. Spider-Man that we grew up reading would, would be funnier. Uh, there was a few odd things. I mean, one fr from the beginning of it, uh, Raimi kind of comically ups the ante, you know, with the can't feel my legs and then it becoming a cage match. And Peter seems to be terrified by the fact that there's a cage. I, I never really understood how that would change anything about the match but uh i remember what we were watching it with my wife and daughter and one of them said is that legal and i was <laughs> like well but then someone hands them uh, bone saw mcgraw a crowbar and i know for a fact that that is not legal no uh, yeah in professional <laughs> wrestling a crowbar yeah. is not okay and I, I don't understand what would make them think as he's fighting a tiny little beanpole kid hey get me the crowbar but um choreography wise there might have been some missed opportunities i mean uh, you know he kind of does some acrobatics and you know most of it is bone saw really whooping him around a little bit which you know the bite didn't turn peter into a great strategist uh, on the battlefield all overnight so that all tracked but ultimately just those few kicks at the end that that was really all peter got in i feel like there could have been some opportunities to kind of show what Peter can really do now. I mean, and, you know, hindsight is this year. There was a lot of opportunity there, but, you know, what can you do? One of the things that comes up in a lot of these movies outside of the Spider-Sense is how his strength levels go yes. up and down. I mean, obviously, this is Spider-Man 2, but he stops a train. It probably would have hurt a little bit if he had given uh, Randy Savage a sock. Absolutely. And next we move on to the promoter ripping Peter off. You know, he was promised $3,000 and the guy hands him a $100 bill and tells him in a very New York way to just hit the bricks. And I thought, you know, it was a nice throwback to Peter winning $100 at wrestling in the original uh, Amazing Fantasy 15. Uh, you know, it sets up that moment where Peter has an opportunity to stop the thief and then doesn't. I think in the original comics, Peter just really had such a big head. He just was like, yeah, I'm not looking out for anybody but me. In this mm -hmm. scene, it, it makes it a little justifiable. You kind of understand, like, hey, I'm not going to help this guy who just ripped me off. I think it puts you a little bit even more in Peter's point of view, where you're oh, like, yeah, yeah good. I, I wouldn't have done that either. And then well, that, no. that makes it sting that much more when you realize what the consequence of that choice was. It was an illustration of some of Uncle Ben's last words to Peter about being careful who you change into. Peter's changing into a jerk. He's not going to let somebody push him around, so he retaliates by not helping when he could easily help. And 
he is in the position where he thinks that this is the way he's going to live his life, and then he goes to meet Uncle Ben to be picked up and go back home, and things just go poorly from there. It's a thing that comics fans know is coming, and anybody who can probably put a story together knows is coming. Uncle Ben has been shot. He's been carjacked. He's laying there in the street, bleeding out, dying. Uh, and, and, and of course, Cliff Robertson just knocked it out of the park with the oh, quivering voice. Scene. And, oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, Peter's origin, the idea that he made this terrible decision that haunts him for the rest of his life and, and drives him. It's one of the most important superhero origins of them all. And Raimi did not miss an opportunity to really just knock it out of the park. It's, it's a beautiful uh, realization of, of that mythology. And, and uh, you, you, you know things are never going to be the same for this guy. Peter is, he hears where the guy is going. He's chasing after him. We get some really ugly, uh, angry web swinging. I liked how rough it was. He's after mm-hmm. the guy. He's angry. It's not perfect. He's not swinging through with uh, great agility or uh, <laughs> ability. He's not right. doing that. You can see how angry it is. It has one of my favorite shots in the movie, him landing on that dome and just, oh, yeah. that's a beautiful shot. But uh, then Peter continues on chasing after the car going after the carjacker, heading eventually to the warehouse where the Ditko Lee origin story continues on in this practically pitch-perfect uh, adaptation. But uh, when I saw the trailer for the first time, when he's lowering behind the burglar, uh, I welled up and cried because it's Spider-Man! Like he's there! Chills. I uh, mean, you know, inner five-year-old just saw Spider-Man, and I couldn't believe it. Absolutely, absolutely. That's such a th- iconic moment, you know, when he when he kind of lowers down and then slides back up, you know, hunting down uh, Uncle Ben's killer the way a spider would, just methodically finding him. And, you know, that, that whole sequence is beautiful because, like you said, you know, he had, he had never perfected web swinging. You know, he had that initial windshield moment where uh, it didn't go very well. So he was figuring it out on the fly. He's, he's chasing down that 1973 Oldsmobile Delta through the, the streets classic. of New York. The classic, right. The classic. Right. But, uh, well, I mean, and, yeah, he was he was angry and he was desperate and it added some power to the scene. You know, I, I, I got to ask you, what did you think? About how the mugger died. Yeah, that's a controversial thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, on one hand, the fact that he sees Peter unmasked, he he needs to die at that point for the story. Uh, one thing I want to just real quickly touch on, uh, the choreography where he sort of does like a backflip handstand to kick that knife up to the ceiling. That's a practical effect. Some of the CGI in the movie is a little rough, but... That scene, uh, it was just so visceral, and it felt like a Spider-Man fight. And then you have this thing where the mugger dies, and it's not really Peter's fault. And I think that, you know, this is kind of superhero movies at that time. uh, A lot of times the villain had to die in a way that somehow still left no blood on the hero's hands. And it's it's fair to call that a cop out. You know, the audience feels like he's gotten justice for Uncle Ben's murder. And we don't have someone out there who knows what he looks like without the mask. He, He the vengeance has been met, but in a way that he didn't kill him. So mm-hmm. I, I think it was very indicative of movies at that time, but I wish that there was a more elegant solution. This also gave us, uh, right afterward, we had that beautiful shot of Peter sitting on the Chrysler Building Eagle. Yeah. Uh, that, was a, that was a nice, evocative shot. Um, 
and uh, we move on to uh, the Green Goblin killing a ton of people. <laughs> uh, the the test of the exoskeleton from his competitor, and and he just comes in and and bombs up the works and kills all his competitors and the general who was a dick. And we got uh, we got all that. It was it was a really brief scene. It was a really brief introduction to Norman. And said, be careful who you change into. Well, Norman went a different way than Peter. It was a very nice and easy and uh, visual way to do that. The bombs turned into the graduation caps. Raimi loves his layers. Yeah, the uh, the overlays and the transitions and the visual metaphors, you know, he, he definitely lays them on very thick. But and I think in a way that really feels like a comic book. I think in a way that worked a little bit better than what Ang Lee tried in the Hulk film uh, a year later in 2003. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One of the things I thought when I was rewatching that very brief scene uh, where we sort of see the Green Goblin's first foray into into murder and mayhem was, mm. uh, man, that exoskeleton was not impressive at all. And it wasn't even an exoskeleton. It was just like a Volkswagen Beetle on a you know, vertical. I didn't see the uh, the appeal uh, of the exoskeleton versus the glider and the uh, performance enhancers. But the General Slocum was was a dick. So, you know, he, just, uh, he really didn't like Norman. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder, you know what it reminded me of, and I'm going to have to go back and watch just to see if there was any um, homage. Uh, it made me think of uh, Justin Hammer's terrible ripoffs in Iron Man yes, 2. 100%. And uh, I'm, going to have to, I'm going to have to look and see if there was there was any similarities there, because that would be really funny if there was. Probably legally there wasn't, but it would be really funny. I, uh, well, it's interesting, too, even to watch the Green Goblin's transformation in light of Captain America, the first Avenger. You see a lot of similarities, and it's just like sort of a dark, twisted uh, oh, yeah. version. And you can even, if you wanted to sort of headcanon this idea that Norman was doing what Banner and other people were doing in the MCU of trying to recreate the super soldier serum and you know if you wanted mm-hmm. to, to to look at it that way but it's definitely a very dark and twisted parallel to uh what they do with steve rogers we talked about this a little bit before maybe we didn't record it but uh i i've really come around on that green goblin costume i like the mask it's a helmet he's flying around on a glider without there's you know i don't see a whole lot holding them on there uh and i mean just just at the speed he's going a bug would not be great I, I still wish there would have been some purple in the costume. I really do. And the man purse. Just the man purse would have been enough. Anyway, we get to the graduation and Peter graduates high school. This is something that people had complained about, that he was in high school for about an hour. Um, yeah, I mean, and- Tobey Maguire is not the guy to sell you on him as a high school student at that stage of the game. You know, as a senior, they were pushing it. I think, you know, if we if we had him as a junior or a sophomore, that would have struck believability. The same with with. James Franco. Funny thing, at the, the last shot of the movie, uh, McGuire looked more like a high schooler there than he did in any of the rest of it. Now let's get down to an important question. How did Peter make that suit? Wow, yeah. <laughs> that is a big step up from yeah. uh, the wrestling costume. For all the people who said that it stretched credibility that he could build web shooters, I mm-hmm. submit that costume. I mean, I know a lot of people who sew and craft and do all kinds of stuff. And if I asked them to make that suit for me, I don't mm-hmm. know how that would go. There's no YouTube. He can't look up any cosplay tutorials. But I like that they just went with it, you know, and I think that that's one of the things that, that Raimi really brought to the trilogy. Is oh, yeah. It's so operatic. It's so soap operatic. It's hugely romantic. 
and you know anything that that strange credibility he just hit the accelerator even harder now we get to one of my favorite parts of the movie the montage where new yorkers are reacting to spider-man my whole family's from new york city so mm-hmm. uh we'd go back and visit quite a bit and i felt like i had interacted with every one of those new yorkers and so it was just so charming and so so pop so comic book so endearing and uh, of course we get another one of the delightful cameos uh of the movie uh, Lucy Lawless as uh, I think she's listed as punk girl. I got such a big laugh out of her. just the look on her face. Eight hands. Sounds hot. I just <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, who who was the comedian who who I don't like him. I think he stinks. You know, who was right. Uh, Jim Norton. Is that Thank you. I, yes. I think that is. Yes, I blanked on it, but I knew yeah. you would remember that got me. <laughs> uh, the uh, the other one that got me was the cop who just said whack a do. That is the most comic booky thing in that movie. <laughs> And then we get to the best introduction in the movie, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson, the best cast part Absolutely. in any Marvel comic movie. I remember at the time, J.K. Simmons was on maybe the most disturbing drama I had ever seen and still have ever seen, which was HBO's Oz. When I heard that he was cast as J. Jonah Jameson, I was like, this guy gives me nightmares. Uh, and J.K. Simmons just brought him to life so beautifully that, that I think, you know, no one has ever tried to recast that role because you can't. No, it was it was the perfect introduction. I just saw Jonah. I just heard Jonah even better. He had the right voice for Jonah. Mm-hmm. You know, J.K. Simmons brought so many layers to it. You know, it, it wasn't a just a, a one note thing or just a, a gag performance. I mean, there there really were layers throughout the film. You know, we we see that there's more to Jonah than just. Oh, yeah. They do uh, a good job. They don't make him all a buffoon in this movie. He does have moments of uh, great humanity. I, I'm, I'm looking at my notes for episode three. Right, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, and I'm, just, I'm, just seeing, I'm just seeing four words that are making me laugh. And the four words are Jonah pushing gig economy. Uh, this had not just the best introduction. I think it also had Jonah's best line. Uh, and that line to me is, if he doesn't want to be famous, I'll make him infamous. Yeah. And it's just, you know, throw, throws it in at the end with infamous. I remember my face hurt from smiling. Those scenes, too, I think all three films had them that were just like master classes of cinema comedy where you have the energy and the bustling of Ted Raimi as, as Hoffman mm-hmm. and Robbie Robertson in there, Betty Brandt. And when Jonah is having like five different conversations at the same time, you know, a conversation mm-hmm. with Robbie about Spider-Man and and Betty Brant with his wife's on the phone. And, the, and Hoffman they, with the ads. And yes. Oh, my gosh. The overlap of those things. The timing is, is mm-hmm. you know, you can set your watch to it. It's so tight. And that's the thing, too, where, you know, the, the amount of energy and the amount of detail, the amount of nuance and, and everything that they put into the Daily Bugle scenes, the movie would have been fine without all that. Like, Raimi and, and his team didn't have to layer the Daily Bugle and create that supporting cast of you know really rich characters Mm -hmm. but they did he understood the importance of that world in in peter parker's life and Mm -hmm. to make it a living breathing three-dimensional world Raimi knew it was worth the time and effort and that's something that i think a lot of other filmmakers really wouldn't have put that energy into makes me feel a little bit bad that that kind of setup isn't really available anymore we've talked about things that didn't exist before now we're talking about things that don't quite exist 
now. You know, a, a newspaper office in that form, a really, I mean, freelance photographers, uh, he wouldn't have needed photos of Spider-Man. There would have been a thousand taken from an iPhone and up, things like that. That's something that I kind of miss a little bit uh, when history kind of writes out things that were very large parts of our of our life, uh, whole industries. Journalism uh, is still there, but it, it's not like that. So, I mean, that that, that made me feel a little, uh, a little wistful. Again, uh, nodding to the supporting cast along with Jonah. I mean, Bill Nunn was great as Robbie. Ted Raimi was great. And Elizabeth Banks was fantastic in such a tiny part. Uh, I believe Raimi gave her more to do in the second movie and the third movie just because she was so good. Absolutely. Now, uh, here's a question for you. Uh, Hoffman is an original character, right? As far as I can remember, yes. Something I also remember around 2002 was how many people were saying, why isn't Robert Guillaume as Robbie Roberts? <laughs> I mean... That was the look. That was almost like the Sam Jackson is Nick Fury, where it's like, mm -hmm. you, you know, who, who else would you get? A lot of people's fan cast was definitely Robert uh, Guillaume as, uh, as Robbie Robertson. And, you know, that brings up a funny thing that I don't think we touched on in the last episode. Uh, but I always have to kind of bring this up whenever we're talking about the Raimi trilogy and Tobey Maguire. Uh, I remember my wife and I went to see Pleasantville in the theater and, and a Spider-Man movie didn't seem like it was going to be happening anytime soon. But at the end of that film, I turned to my wife and I said, if they ever get around to making a Spider-Man movie in the next five or 10 years, they got to get this kid to be Peter Parker. And when they announced a couple of years later that Tobey Maguire from Pleasantville was going to be Peter, I was like, this is the only time my fan cast has ever actually come true. So I was just super over the moon. And, you know, when some people were like, I can't really see it. He's kind of a geeky, nerdy looking kid. And I was like, do you know Spider-Man? Yeah. I've been saying for years that this is the guy they got to get. And, you know, it was interesting. I remember at the time, um, Tobey Maguire really was, you know, I think a vegan before a lot of people knew what a vegan was. Um, mm -hmm. And I do remember reading how difficult it was for his trainers to get him the muscle that they wanted to put on him because he wouldn't eat any meat. And, you know, they were just like, you know, hey, you know, just have one chicken breast. Just something, you know, help us out a little bit. But the guy stuck to his guns and ate, I think, uh, what I heard was a legendary uh, amount of tofu to get whatever protein he could from his diet. But they, they really got him more toned than ripped. And I felt like that was really right for Peter. He was kind of stocky. Uh, the suit was kind of bulky, really. I mean, I know, yeah. you know, when you when you see the behind the scenes things, you can see that it's a muscle suit with then the spandex over it. He, he looked like a, a Jack Kirby drawing of Spider-Man. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, anyway, so we've, we've got the Daily Bugle, and now we get into the last scene of this quarter of the movie, which is Peter walking around. He's looking for a job. He's uh, pounding the pavement, and he sees uh, MJ coming out of her job at a diner, and she's trying to, you know, trying to hide it from him at first. Teenage ego. Uh, <laughs> she was going to go to Broadway. Uh, no, she's, she's waiting tables at a diner, which, sure, you know, okay, that makes sense. She's 19, 18, 19 years old. That's sure. But Peter discovers it. You know, he, he gets it right away, but she doesn't want him to tell Harry. And then he finds out that she and Harry are dating. And the soap opera, as you were talking about, just came back and hit him in the face. Absolutely. You know, and I, I really appreciated uh, that the movie did spend some time kind of talking about class and income inequality and things like that. I mean, I think when when you especially, you know, when you when you go to public school in, in a big city, a really big city, the class uh, differences are really pronounced. You know, you have rich kids, you have middle class, you have poor kids. And I think especially in that time, 
if you were a poor kid in a public school, the rich kids really let you have it. There was a lot of focus on labels and, and you know, clothing labels and, and, and status symbols and things like that. And I think that that really makes sense that Peter and MJ coming from the lower end of the scale and trying to, you know, navigate a school system that had Flash Thompson, whose parents bought him a car for his birthday, and, and Harry Osborne, who shows up in a roles and, and is embarrassed by it. That really rung true for public school in a big city. And that scene, you know, the Moondance Diner is, uh, you know, springs directly from that. Uh, MJ kind of being embarrassed by having to work a very, you know, basic job to get by. And Peter really, uh, I love his line. It says so much about him, uh, you know, about uh, there's nothing to be ashamed about having a job. Like that's just that strong kind of American, you know, work ethic of, uh, and it becomes a reoccurring theme throughout the film. You know, Peter's, uh, the respect he has for hard work and, you know, making it on his own. Well, you know, it, uh, while you were talking about Harry, it made me think when he went to public school after failing out of all the private schools, he really should have been, probably drawn to being friends with Flash. Um, so it speaks to him having just terrible social skills that he is <laughs> his only friend is the nerd. And even though this comes up later, it, it said a lot to me about Harry when MJ was upset after the Green Goblin attack that his first impulse was, I want to buy you something. It'll make you right. feel better. What kind yeah. of a upbringing did he have if that's his go-to, man? I tell you. I, but, I think we, we know exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. So, But it was it was good. It worked out. And uh, that diner scene is uh, the second quarter of the movie coming to a close. We have done it. We've gotten halfway through Spider-Man 2002. This is good stuff. Okay, here it is. We're back. Our top three favorite Spidey artists is the topic for the week. So I'm going to go with my number one first. Uh, Steve Ditko was the one. I mean, my first Spider-Man comic, as we talked last week, was uh, a reprint of Spidey Strikes Back. That Ditko art with uh, Johnny Storm, Sandman and the Enforcers, all kinds of crazy stuff going on just hooked me like a fish. So Steve Ditko is my number one. Who do you got, sir? John Romita Jr. Talk about a workhorse. The majority of the reading of Spider-Man that I did as a kid was the John Romita Jr. Roger Stern era. If you look at that early stuff, I mean, it's so crisp. The motion, the movement that he gave Spider-Man, so kinetic. I mean, he just jumped off of every panel. And then later on, you know, when he, when he sort of came back to Spider-Man, maybe mm -hmm. a decade later, with a little bit more of, of a, you know, idiosyncratic style, moving further away from his dad's style, uh, still so much energy, still so much personality, really gave Spider-Man a, a bug-like kind of creepiness to him. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody draws New York like Romita Jr. His New York always feels real. Uh, and the way Spider-Man uh, navigates New York, uh, I, I just absolutely love. So on a pure sentimental or pure personal preference for me, number one is uh, John Romita Jr. Uh, you talked about him drawing a realistic New York, my second, Ross Andrew. Yeah. And he drew, I mean, he was out taking pictures. And he had, as I uh, read a, a bit that uh, Gary Conway had talked about, uh, that he was so good with uh, spatial distancing, the movement looked real. Well, like a photograph. And uh, it, I mean, he drew so much in, in his five-year run, including the uh, first Marvel DC uh, superhero crossover, you know, with Superman and Spider-Man. And that was something. So he, he never gets uh, the do that, say, uh, John Romita Sr. gets or Ditko gets or Gil Kane. But uh, no, man, ah, 
I got a, just a thick stack of 70s uh, Marvel comics at one point, and uh, that's where I fell in love with his work. So much great stuff. Anyway, uh, a solid second choice, number one, if not for Ditko. Who's your number two here? Well, that's what's uh, funny. You know, uh, for me, number two is definitely Ditko. I mean, obviously, it started with him. He created the visual Bible of the character. Uh, and even those scenes, you know, a, a Ditko scene where there's no action is still so fun to look at. He sold the drama. He sold the melodrama. He sold the soap opera. He sold the comedy. But the other thing that was super fun, too, were, were the, the, the pinups or mm-hmm. the little things that, where they would break down, like, how does his web shooters work? It's, it was almost hard for me to, to choose between Ramita Jr. and Ditko. It's a beautiful thing about these. There is absolutely no wrong answer. So number three, one of the most prolific artists, we talked about him a bit last time, is uh, Sal Buscema. Sal has drawn some of the most fantastic issues. Uh, we've talked about Harry in the movie portion. He drew the uh, the issue where uh, Harry died. He set up a death trap for Peter, mm. kidnapped MJ, but he didn't actually have MJ in the death trap because he would never hurt her. Uh, Peter's in there, he's, and, and MJ Sam goes, you're, you're just going to let him die you can't he's your friend you just and harry who has gone crazy is just like he's my friend but he's also spider-man and and you know he goes in he's got the goblin formula is messing with him he goes in he rescues peter brings him out and then he dies and it's a silent couple of pages of uh, of the two friends saying goodbye it was so powerful and it was so good and uh i mean that scene alone would have uh would have been enough for uh sal to be on the top three but uh he, he just had so many others again like i said last week the first spider-man comic i ever bought and uh so many others just i mean he was a machine and uh you know he he's earned his retirement but i miss him agreed yeah and i especially liked when he was inking his own work i mean i mm-hmm. feel like that's when um some people would ink him a little bit traditionally but mm-hmm. his own inking style over his pencils was just so unique and, and really brought out his individuality. What I remember is uh, people complaining because uh, he, he, would, he would draw the, uh, the furrowed brow and mm-hmm. uh, they didn't like that. He looks like Charlie Brown. It sucks. It's no good. Kids I went to school with didn't like the, uh, the furrowed brow that Sal would throw on to Peter and others. And I mean, I was fine with it. I thought it looked cool. I was just excited to read the spectacular Spider-Man. Anyway, we're on to your number three. Boy, this is a tough one for me because there's so many. I mean, uh, you know, I think of Gil Kane a lot. I think mm-hmm. Even Mike Zach, who doesn't have a huge body of Spidey work, but I always really But enjoyed. what an issue. What a story. <laughs> Yeah, right? How about it? I mean, and just the body language that Mike Zeck brought to it. I mean, I, I felt like that was a Spider-Man who felt like he lived in, in the real world, you know, more mm-hmm. so than a lot of the some of the other ones. It's so hard. But I think I'm going to go with Mark Bagley for uh, oh. my number three, just because talk about a guy who has just contributed so much. And of course, I'll always love the fact that he was the winner of the original Marvel tryout. You know, whether it was his original run on Amazing or even kind of bringing him into the 21st century. Uh, on Ultimate. Every panel that Mark Bagley drew, you could kind of see the love for the character and he almost kind of feels like a, a custodian of Spider-Man in the sense that um, he, he's going to make sure that he always looks right, that he always acts right. You know, uh, I mean, a variety of inkers have done great stuff with him, but it just he always shines through. Super strong storytelling, you know, not, not flashy, but not boring. And I feel uh-huh. like he kind of had a good combination of like, the fundamentals and the storytelling uh, uh, that Ramita or Ross Andrew had, but then 
some of the more fanciful things that you saw from like a Todd McFarlane or Eric Larson. It was just a nice combination of kind of a culmination of everything that had come before. Yeah, well, uh, he, like most of the great artists, is uh, unique in style enough that when you see his work, you don't need to be told who it is. It's Mark Bagley and you know at a glance, and that's fantastic. And I, of course, came to his work like uh, so many with the New Warriors mm-hmm. and uh, was elated when he went on to Spider-Man because he did a, a great job and uh, the books were fantastic. He was on uh, he was on Amazing, mm-hmm. if I remember right. And he um, he designed, I believe, the costume that went on to be famous for Spider-Girl. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he designed the, the Ben Riley as Spider-Man costume. Do you remember how insane people were about Ben Riley taking over? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, so he was and... blonde. He worked in a coffee shop. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, he had he had that that crazy different costume uh, that was sort of Spidey and sort of not. There was there was I think it was not as bad as the uh, Hal's Emerald Assault Team or whatever it was who were angry that they, they uh, killed Hal Jordan. But right. it, it was right up there. There was uh, there was protests and uh, petitions and uh, and angry, angry, angry fans at the in the infancy of the Internet as we know it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if you go back and you look at fandom before uh, message boards and, and, and all that kind of stuff, you, you, you can see the huge reaction, you know, and, and I'm funny, too, because I feel like Ben Riley and uh, was it... Jean Paul Valley, you know, I mean, as Azrael mm-hmm. and the Scarlet Spider were sort of kindred uh, spirits in in taking over a main character in the '90s, and the fans just not really being there for it. But that costume design, I think, really stands up. I mean, and it's one of those things that any video game you expect is going to have Scarlet Spider in there. And mm-hmm. he, you know, you, you, I have not been to a Comic Con that didn't have at least one Ben Riley uh, cosplayer. And, although, uh, although I've never seen, I've never seen the Bagley designed Ben Riley as oh, Spider-Man right. costume. I've only seen that as Spider-Girl, I, but the hoodie that Tom Lyle designed with the red bodysuit and the white yes. eyes, that, that's, that's everywhere. That's very popular. Good call. Yes, you're absolutely yeah, yeah. That's the Tom Lyle design. Yeah. But uh, Ben Riley was, uh, was a fun uh, dodge away from Peter for a little bit. I think the problem with the story was that unlike John Pal Valley, they didn't exactly have an exit ramp for him. They, they, they did the clone saga uh, and it was making so much money. They just said, keep going. That's what I recall reading at the time anyway. Keep it keep it going. Keep the books coming out. Uh, and, and then they just said, okay, big twist. Peter was the clone. And now this is, you know, so they, they did the whole thing and um, and then swept it under the rug, I think. And that was uh, Junior that did that, who drew that story. Yep. Uh, so there we go. Yeah. Uh, Peter Parker, 75. Oh, I'd have to look. I'd have to It feels right. It feels like an anniversary issue thing. It feels like 75 was right. I know it was Green Goblin. I know uh, Ben Riley uh, went went dusty. <laughs> oh no oh no no i i i don't feel so good peter oh no <laughs> it's just it was a mr stark moment before there was an mcu i uh i love it i'm, I'm laughing because that's now how i'm seeing it in my head it was he was a clone the whole time tony you didn't know you should have known <laughs> you should have figured it out you're the smartest man but uh no so uh no that was that was a good top three uh i think we did well well, next time, uh, we'll be talking about our top three favorite Spidey writers. We will be talking about the third half hour, the third quarter of Spider-Man 2002. So uh, we uh, will we'll do the, the proper send-off this time and tell people where to find us. Uh, the podcast Twitter page is uh, twitter.com slash webheadpodcasts. And you can send us an email at cinemaspidey at mail.com. Finally, you can leave us a voice message up to one minute in length at anchor.fm slash webheadpodcast. 
oh, hey, that ibuprofen kicked in. My jaw doesn't hurt anymore. I call that a success. So we'll see everybody next week. Take care. Thank <sharp inhale> you.